I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female. My guest this week is April Pride, founder of cannabis brand Vanderpop, which April sold to the world's largest cannabis company, Canopy Growth, in 2018. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Following her successful exit, April launched Of Like Minds, which develops brands for women who are changing their lives thanks to altered states of consciousness, a topic April also explores as host of the High Guide podcast. A serial entrepreneur who has been developing brands and products for over two decades, April now invests exclusively in women entrepreneurs and innovative businesses that serve women consumers. April is also a brand consultant in the legal cannabis space. Here is my conversation with April Pride. April, it's such a pleasure having you on The Brandy's Female today. Thank you for making time to speak with me. Thank you for having me, Eva. So you've listened to the show before. We were, we were just chatting before the interview, so you probably know by now. I like to ask my guests at the onset, um, you know, kind of the origin story for, uh, for what they ended up doing. So I want to know in your case, growing up, what, what were you dreaming uh, of a career for, for yourself later in life? What kind of professional life were you imagining at that time? And was it at all connected to what you are actually doing today? Or was it something completely different? I think, I think the makings of where I am now started probably with my dad who was always trying to do something entrepreneurial um, and would, would, I was the oldest by many, many years. So I was brought in to help him fold flyers and put them on people's doors or people's cars, right? For he's a, he's a carpenter. And so my mom was always in, in the building industry as well, whether she worked at a, a lumber supply store or was the only woman on a job as the superintendent. So, yeah. So I also had construction and how to make things in my life. And so I ended up going to architecture school, which if you know people who are build things, they don't really love architects so much because they think architects demand they build things that are impossible. So my parents were like, we're happy you're going to college. I was the first one to do so in my family. But do you really have to be an architect? And I didn't go into college with that in mind. I went as a pre-com or pre-commerce, a business major. Mm-hmm. And very quickly realized that what was going to be required of me in terms of the classes just wasn't really what I was naturally gifted at studying or finding interest in sitting with spreadsheets and all the rest of it. So I transferred into the architecture school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was the first time that this idea of being a creative in as a profession was introduced to me, you know, and in the eighties, when I was in elementary school in Virginia, as a girl, (laughs) if nobody was creative, I was just a girl that daydreamed too much, you know, was right. So that wasn't an option in my senior year of high school. I was asked to design the, the, um, float for our homecoming parade. And that was Mm. sort of the first time I was like, huh, I'm not only a creative, but people are listening to my creative idea and they're helping me Mm -hmm. to execute it. Mm So there were these ideas of you can be an entrepreneur, you can be a creative, but there wasn't really a system mm. or culture in place to support that from a 
really what I wanted was to not be financially strapped and to be able to pay my own student loans and, you know, to support myself and live a big life. I really wanted a big life. I was leaving Virginia for God's sakes. (laughs) And, um, and so I finished up college and found myself in San Francisco in 1998 at the beginning, you know, in the middle of a a tech boom and went into sales. Because when I was in college, I put myself through college selling books door to door. So I had this entrepreneurial streak proven I'd done really well. And, and sales just made a lot of sense, right? Can make a lot of money. And I hated it. I (laughs) I hated it as a job. I hated working in tech. I had a lot of fun, but it really didn't feel authentic to me. And so then I started working at architecture firm and then a top interior design firm and went to Parsons to get my master's. And from there, it just... Starting in 2004, I launched one business after another, Mm -hmm. first as an interior designer, and then a product within that space that I sold later, about four years later. And then that propelled me into what I'm working in now, which is cannabis and psychedelics and developing brands for women specifically in those spaces. Thank you so much. You've kind of summed up your your journey perfectly. And I still see a connection, right? With parents who were, uh, you know, you had a role model who was very entrepreneurial on one side, somebody who was creative as well. And your mom being in a an industry that's not traditional for women. I mean, that must have been an inspiration, even if you didn't follow specifically in, in her footsteps. Um, so who were role models along the way? And I'm curious to know, you know, when you started in interior design and architecture. And it's it's interesting because I've had, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a publication called Madame Architect, uh, but a previous yeah, guest yeah. on the show uh, uh, who's, a, who's a woman working in architecture, um, you know, talks or often addresses the fact that there are not that many women yet in architecture and, you know, it's we're starting to see more and it's very inspiring to hear their journey. So, to make a long story short, um, who would have been role models for you at that point? It was always more, it was more people that women who were working in interiors, right? It was very, what you said is exactly right. It was either you're an architect or you're an interior designer. And if you're an interior designer, you're usually a woman, right? And so I had met somebody, I had friends whose moms were interior designers growing up and they had so much flexibility, they were home when their kids came home from school. Mm. And I don't know. I, I didn't, my mom was a single mom and worked all the time. And I made dinner and I gave the kids baths and I did all that sort of thing. Right. So I thought that that sounded pretty cool, but to be able to do both, it never occurred to me that your life would be so big and your career would be so big that you wouldn't, you still wouldn't have time to be with your kids, right? That you really had to set out and have flexibility. And it's interesting that I was so focused on a family because I didn't, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't really think about that so much growing up, but it really stuck with me because I knew if my mom had flexibility, she, she would have been a lot. She would have been happy, right? She really liked being with us kids, but you have to pay the bills, right? So I was like, okay, right. how can I do both of those things? And the women who were interior designers had a lot of flexibility. Mm, that's so true. Being an interior designer is a lot of shopping and I'm not a big shopper. <laughs> so that's really what it came down to is like, oh, this requires a lot of project management. Mm, not great with my brain. Mm-hmm. And it also requires a lot of just spending time shopping. And I mm-hmm. just, yeah, well, I was very happy when this product idea came to me and I had my firm, I had an assistant and we had 
just a couple of months between projects. And we started working on this. And then that, when I launched a product, I thought, this is all I ever want to do. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It, it, it came clearly to you, at least uh, for some people, it's a, it's a longer journey. Um, you started in the cannabis space early, right? Um, uh, it seems that you were one of the brands to uh, kind of pop onto the scene in, in, in the earlier days of the, of the movement. So where did you get the idea? What was the inspiration? And, um, you know, were you already aware that the, you know, the industry was going to go through such uh, a, a boom or was it really just following your intuition and, you know, working on a product that you were uh, personally inspired to create? So where things left off with, um, with the product that I sold is that my mother-in-law at the time she had given me a dress that I, I describe as one size fits most. It's a belted halter dress and it, she's five, three and, you know, very voluptuous. I am five ten and not so much. So, and it fit both of us. She had had it made from a picture in a magazine in the 1970s. And so I had a trip planned to China to see a friend and I brought the dress with me and we went to a market and I chose five fabrics and then I had my first five samples. Oh, wow. You know, I went back in two days and picked them up. Yeah. Okay. So and the, so the decided, first product was not cannabis. That's what we're getting to. <laughs> right. Yeah. I launched into fashion, which felt very um, inauthentic to who I am. I have friends who are at work in fashion and have studied fashion. And, you know, that is a passion that I just have, have never felt. Um, so it was hard to say that I am a fashion entrepreneur yeah. and during that time, a writer called me a creative entrepreneur and I felt like that really mm -hmm. stuck. And so one of my clients came to a pop-up that I had at the four seasons here. I was doing a weekly pop-up salon and she said, I started working in cannabis. Really? You don't even drink. What are you doing? <laughs> you know? And she was the executive assistant for privateer holdings. And she's telling me this and she said, no one's developing anything with the designer's eye. And there's really nothing that's coming in for women. And that's some, that was something that didn't really stick with me at the time, right? She just mentioned that. And I think she mentioned that because I was working in fashion, mm -hmm. but really what she was telling me was that I needed to do something in terms of accessories that looked great. So I said, okay, I'll take you out to dinner. I want to hear more. And we went to dinner and we went to a restaurant where I knew the owners and he said, why are you, why do you look so, you know, intense in this conversation? I said, she's trying to convince me to launch a cannabis accessories line. And he said, if you do that, I'll give you your seed money. Wow. So was it. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> okay, I think this is what I'm doing next. And I took, okay, that would have been in March. And I went away in April with my kids to spring break to Joshua Tree and spent a lot of time just like journaling and what does this really mean and look like? And where, where do I want, where do I want this to go? And it really just came down to designing products, which is something that I had been doing and really knew how to do. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to have a really good time, make some cool products. You know, I didn't really realize, I didn't realize that my life was about to change. Mm -hmm. And when I launched in January, 2016, this brand called Vanderpop, it was for people who wanted really great looking stash accessories. I was smoking out of a bowl that had Marshawn Lynch, who was a U.S., who at the time was a U.S. football player for the Seattle Seahawks, which is where I live, right. named carved on one side of the glass, his number on another side. And I looked at my handbag and I looked at my shoes and I was like, this is not, this is not adding fair. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's sort of what really inspired 
Vanderpop. And so about three months into launch, I had learned so much on the job, really in market, listening to people. And I had no idea how the plan interacted with a woman's body mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. so specifically. And there was no research, right? It was I was just finally hearing women's stories mm-hmm. because I smoked if someone had weed around. I didn't have my own stash until it became legal in Washington state. It was just... And there were very few times that I had consumed and not been drinking. And those two things for me do not mix. So I didn't always have great results. Right. So I was, I had stopped drinking when I launched Vanderpop and found cannabis as something that was an alternative to alcohol. And I felt very strongly that women needed to understand that they too could choose this as an alternative if alcohol was something that was helping them with stress or mm-hmm. to connect with people or you know, all of the things that we turned to it for, but it was maybe not helping in other aspects of their life, which is what I found for myself. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and then that's when we really transitioned into an educational platform mm-hmm. for women who were curious about cannabis because they would, these products became proxies to talk about the right. plant. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. I was going to say it was much more than a product, you know, brand. It was a whole education platform, a whole awareness platform and about, about women's health at the same time. Yeah, it was. It, that's what it became. And I, that's very hard to make a business out of yeah. <laughs> education. So I was very fortunate when at the end of 2016, after having met Alan Gertner, who was the CEO of Tokyo Smoke, he and I met. We, he had an investor who had reached out to me, had heard about my brand and actually lives in Washington state as well. And Alan and I reconnected and he was like, you want to, do you want to merge? <laughs> do you want to do this? I was like, yeah, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started working in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Um, did it feel because, you know, you kind of had a completely different professional experience up to that point, you did uh, have a, a, a company or brands in, in the fashion uh, industry prior to launching cannabis, but did you feel, you know, di- did it feel like a, like you were a legitimate entrepreneur for a lot of women who start a kind of a new product or, you know, in some cases their first company, there's kind of that feeling of, you know, is this going to be a business? Am I going to be successful at this? For you, when did it feel, it was also a brand new industry to play in. So at what point did it feel like, all right, this is, you know, this is going to take off and we're going to see viable commercial success from, from this project? Well, I knew that it needed to the second I took investment from Mm -hmm. outside of Mm -hmm. my own savings. So, um, and we had two, I had two investors in Vanderpop, which, so I put in $50,000 of my own money and raised 25,000 from two investors and returned 28X to those investors and myself, because I don't think women, these people see women's ideas as coming, you know? I mean, so we did a lot with a hundred thousand dollars and when did I, when did, when it just took off and it wasn't hard. I mean, of course (laughs) I was just able to pivot. So I remember having an intern who said when when I would have exit interviews at the end of the summer, I would say, what is the one thing that you learned this summer? And one said to me that I'm, 
you can work on an idea for a week and you can just throw it away at the end of the week if it's really not working or it's no longer you've solved a different or you have a different problem that you need to solve, right? It's led to something else. Mm -hmm. And so that thinking really is what I brought to Vanderpop because as a newly emerging industry that is not even federally legal, definitely not in the US, and had not even been voted in by parliament in Canada when I sold in early 2017. You just have to keep changing what you're doing to either follow the regs or because we don't have any consumer data, you're listening to your customer and constantly changing so that you're providing them what they need, not what Mm -hmm. you think they need. So I just kept doing that and changing and, and, iterating and reiterating Mm -hmm. (laughs) all of it. And it kept working. When I would change, it would work. Okay. And then we'd get to a place and like, "Hmm, okay, change again. And we had to be fast like that. So if I think if we had a lot of money and we went too far in one direction, it probably would have been to our demise, frankly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, Was it hard being a woman at the helm of a business in that industry? I mean, still today, uh, you know, we see more men kind of running cannabis brands, cannabis businesses. Uh, there are some women in the industry and, um, you know, they're, but they're rarely CEOs or rarely at, you know, the top of the food chain. Did you feel any limitations or obstacles because you were a woman? So I launched Vanderpop in early 2016 in January. And in January 2017 was the Women's March. So prior to that... Me too, I think maybe had started, um, was in the headlines, but I wasn't, I wasn't servicing women as consumers because it was trendy. It Mm -hmm. really felt like, I don't know, someone needs to talk about this. And I didn't know that I was at a disadvantage when it came to raising money. Those headlines hadn't hit yet, Right, that we only get 2% of VC funding. And as a mom that was in charge of big job sites with, you know, and she's the only woman and a grandmother who worked until she retired at 82, I didn't know that women were at a disadvantage. All the women that I knew were, you know, doing really, really well at a time that it turns out not a lot of women were working in high role. It just was fascinating. I had no idea that this is how the world was actually working. So I think my ignorance is why I would show up and just be like, okay, this is what I'm doing. What are you guys up to? (laughs) I love it. It played to your advantage, right? Um, That's so interesting because that's been a recurring theme with some entrepreneurs where they say, I didn't realize that, you know, women don't go after funding as much or don't obtain as much. And I just did it because, you know, I thought that's what everybody did. (laughs) So it, it served you well. I think it's not serving me well now though. Mm. Like having that information, it really instills a lot of fear that wasn't mm. there mm. when I've launched other brands. So I've I've sold now three companies. So why am I scared now? And it's this knowledge. I just am not using it to my advantage. I'm just like, oh, it's going to be harder. Oh, and now we all know. And there's a recession looming. And so I'm That's trying kind to of fascinating, actually. How, how can we reverse that? How can we, you know, teach women that 
I don't know, there are more opportunities ahead or we can we can change that trend or reverse that trend. Would that be possible? Uh, well, I mean, it really starts with women investing in other women, right? And so I did do that after I sold my company. I have eight different companies that are women founded and led that I've invested in. Six of them are in the cannabis space. And, you know, that is that's really the one thing that we can do if we have means yeah is to is to invest in other women's visions because that's i did not i have not i now i understand how difficult it is mm-hmm. to find money but i'm learning at this particular time when i've got three exits i've got great returns for my investors i have four brands i'm launching they're mm-hmm. all sound this is a great idea the economy shit and I'm also launching again into a space that's quickly, rapidly emerging, new industry, regs are unclear. So investors are a little bit scared. And I've got all this in my head. What's wrong with me? Mm. Why would I choose this? Why won't they choose me? <laughs> you know, so I don't know how it's just daily meditation, journaling, <laughs> and reminding myself that if it's meant to be, it really will line up the way that it's supposed to. And with these ventures, other than Um, funding, which I've only pitched probably a dozen people. So I'm just starting. Um, Everything else is lining up. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, puts guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. What was the biggest lesson? And I was going to say, you know, with your first cannabis brand, but I'm tempted to ask now that you've had a few exits, you're invested uh, in other women's businesses as well. Maybe, you know, what are what are the two biggest lessons you've learned in business, building a business and then be able to bring it to that successful stage of, you know, selling it and, and exiting? Mm, I think, well, the two things I've learned, I guess I've learned that self-promotion is an unfortunate reality in today's environment as an entrepreneur, particularly if you're a woman. And I find that to be unfortunate. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then the second thing is how that I've learned is the importance of knowing how to manage people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, those two things I would say, yeah, have been my biggest learnings. I want to come back to that idea of self-promotion why do you feel it's unfortunate and how can we, or what's your approach to, you know, promoting yourself and how can we find a balance? So it it doesn't feel as, as unfortunate, but I want to hear why you think it's unfortunate first. Because it's a lot of time just to run your business, right. And to also have to be the face of your business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not something that I 
I've had to do it out of necessity earlier in my career. And I always had someone managing, for instance, my social media and we, it would be scheduled, right? I didn't do it as I'm hanging out with my kids, taking a picture, writing the copy and firing it off. It was always something that was done during work hours. And I kept my time with my family very separate because so much of work was already creeping into that time. Right. And you know, you can't always have an assistant that's managing your social media when you're between brands or yeah. whatever. So in in the in between, I don't do it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to start it all back up again, right? Mm-hmm. Because it feels like it's for work. It doesn't feel like I'm natural. I'm not a person that's naturally oversharing <laughs> or mm-hmm. sharing very much. And so I, I'm at this place where I have to decide, you know, how do you build a brand and you, you're not out there in front in the same way that people expect you to be and I don't know if it's even possible is, is where I am right now. So I'm at a crossroads trying to figure out like, okay, you know, are you going to really figure this out? But the truth of it is, Eva, is that the way that I don't like to be on my phone a lot Yeah. and I have ADHD. And so for me to be on social media makes absolutely no sense for how my brain works. Mm-hmm. And I think that it protects my mental health, not doing this, mm-hmm. you know, but to line it up for work and have posts and all the rest of it, that's fine. But I, for me personally, I think it's so much better if I'm not. So yeah, I'm conflicted. Do you think the pressure is the same for uh, male founders, for, you know, men entrepreneurs and, and for women? Okay. That's a great question. I would say no, but is it that women are more naturally inclined to be communicators, whether it's through pictures or videos or their words, right? That they gravitate to these platforms so that they can get the word out about their brands or their core values as the founder. Mm -hmm. And I think that all of that's fine. It's just that not every woman naturally does that. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a few who are able to be successful without that persona and the online visibility and, and, and so on. But I've heard that from a lot of entrepreneurs. They feel that they have to, and they feel that it's a, a key part of building their brand up, right? And for many, as you're as you're highlighting, it's it doesn't come naturally, and that can be really yeah. tough, mm-hmm. right? And it's not that it's not that it necessarily moves the needle either, right? Like mm-hmm. for my industry, I'm shadow banned. All of my accounts are shadow banned, right? So there's no growth. So I'm not very motivated to pay into a system basically that is not going to ever pay me back. Right. Right. In a way. So yeah, mm, mm-hmm. that's really been tough too. And I want to talk about values and I think there's actually connection and, and you know, from, from what we were just talking about, um, you've built a few brands now um, and, and, you know, you've invested in others. How do you create culture for, you know, culture in the workplace, culture for the team that that works with you? Um, and how is it, you know, and there is a dish added challenges now. A lot of companies are still, you know, doing kind of hybrid work. Not everyone's necessarily working from one physical location uh, that can make things tougher in, in certain cases. But as a woman leader, how did you bring, how do you bring your employees into kind of that common vision, purpose, and, and share, you know, and build values and culture with them? Let's start with what I used to do and how that was really wrong, right? Yeah. I was super stressed out really, really did not 
show up as my best self when I was mm-hmm. under time pressure or when mm, it was really time pressure has always been something that's tough for me because I'm not great at time management. Mm-hmm. So I'd find myself in these places. And also I'm not great at explain. I've gotten better at this, but at the time, not explaining what I need because chronological planning is not something that is like natural for me either. And so people can't read your mind. So I've had to learn (laughs) to explain things and not just assume that everyone's going to figure out what I've got going on in here. Um, So that's, it's really great to be a creative, but sometimes it's not great to be at the helm as a creative. Mm -hmm. So I've thought, hmm, okay, this is my strength. How do I really use this? And it's my enthusiasm, (laughs) my willingness to listen to other ideas and to implement them and give people credit, right? When they're the ones that have really made this significant change happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I've determined is that my job is to show up every day and be in a great mood Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. be willing, yeah, be willing to see where what I'm doing is maybe not working because that gives other people the sense that it's okay to not be doing it right. Right. You know, it, 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 in particular, again, in these industries that there are no rules yeah, and there's no, you'd, what did we do before? Oh, we didn't do anything before. We're doing it all for the first time. How yeah. are we going to do that? <laughs> yeah. So you have to have a sense of humor too. And I did not have fun at work. I was mm-hmm. a very serious girl. Firstborn, <laughs> highly driven, like, let's just make sure we get all this done, you know? And there wasn't a lot of, yeah, just like, aren't we the luckiest people in the world? This is the best job. And that is something that between Vanderpop and now, I'm really excited to, you know, just to be working in this space and not be doing shopping, mm-hmm. not be shopping. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind, that's kind of funny, but you, you want people to be shopping your product though. So you're, you're just on the, on the other yeah. side of the, of the shopping process. Um, yeah, well, we'll oh, sorry. go ahead. Yeah. I think we may get into this later, but I was going to say now it's not really shopping. I want to provide experiences for people. Well, perfect segue because I want to talk about uh, kind of a, a more recent or new chapter in in your journey as an entrepreneur and, and brand builder. So um, I think there, you know, there's a kind of a connection between cannabis and we're talking about women's health. Um, major breakthroughs in in the field of psychedelics are, are happening. Uh, legislations are, you know, are, are evolving uh, to be able to do more in that field. So when did you become interested in psychedelics and uh, what are you doing in the industry these days? So uh, after my exit to Canopy Growth in 2018, September, I started another podcast and started working on that podcast in early 2019. And that was focused on cannabis. Mm-hmm. It's called How to Do the Pot. And I started that with a woman I went to college with And the idea there was that I had this audience across border, right? And in the U.S., we can talk about cannabis in a very different way than Mm -hmm. you can in Canada now that it's federally legal and Health Canada is managing the language. And I saw that firsthand how we talked about Vanderpop before and after. Totally different. Right. So, yeah, the idea was that we would be able to talk about the plant in a more open way, just as we always had. But there was no new research. And so I got on year two and there wasn't anything new to talk about, right? We, I was interviewing the same experts. 
mm-hmm. about sleep, about endometriosis and other autoimmune. It was all still anecdotal. Mm-hmm. People, we just here in the U.S., Congress just approved the um, Marijuana and Cannabidol Medical Research Act, and Biden hasn't signed it in yet, which was supposed to happen at the first year. So I don't really know what's going on, but it has been passed. And my first thought was, yeah. But who's going to invest in medical research for women? Because if you look at the money that's spent on women's conditions and issues compared to men's, yeah. I don't it's think so that small. we're going to get, yeah, it's so small. Mm-hmm. And so I was just fr- a frustrated creative writing about things that we still didn't have answers, really have medical answers for, right. so that I could say to these women, buy this product, take this amount and you can expect this, right? Right. And so women are spending almost $200 before they find the right product to help them to sleep, to help them with their pain, including migraines, right? So that's a lot of money to maybe get something that sort of works. Right. So um, this was in early 2021. And it's like, you know what, what's going on in psychedelics, why are they getting? Why is why is there research there mm-hmm. and not for cannabis? And about the same time, I saw that influencers and cannabis cannabis influencers and cannabis brands on social media were talking about psilocybin, right? And it was something that I had done recreationally um, a lot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not not too much, but certainly enough. Mm-hmm. And and I understood that all of these things had worked their magic in ways that were accidental. There was no intention. There was no integration. It was just, you know, here's a bag and, you know, maybe take a couple stems and a cap for mm-hmm. talking about mushrooms. And it looked to me like there was the same opportunity to jump into an industry and to help women really understand how to use this to their benefit. And there was research to show how it could help. We are, we're woefully behind, but we're getting, you know, mm-hmm. there's just more funding. And so, uh, because there's more money mm-hmm. to be made, right. By these larger companies and pharmaceutical companies. So that's exactly. re- really why. And I couldn't just jump in and create something. So I started another podcast called the high guide, which is my current podcast. And we just wrapped up the fourth season so that I could learn on the job. That's really what podcasting allows me to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I'm sure you feel that way a little bit too. And so each season was it's first season was high potency THC. The second season we created music to trip to with a local electronic music maker here in Seattle. And then we had seven, trips. And then in between those, we would talk to someone who had listened. We shipped out um, Golden Teacher, two grams to each of these four or five different women that did trips. And then we interviewed them afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then the next season, we worked with a facilitator and three women and went through 10 episodes of them having an intention, working on that intention through a psychedelic trip and then integrating after. And then this last season, we focused on ketamine. So I've learned a lot. And one thing that I've learned is that integration from people who know so much more about this than I do is that integration is really the key, right? right? It's one thing to have the journey, but what are you doing afterwards to reinforce what came up, to keep asking yourself questions in a curious way without any sort of judgment about why you felt that way, why this came up, right? You have to keep asking yourself these questions and be curious about, yeah, what's in your subconscious, right? What's really getting in your way that you don't know about or Mm -hmm. what's been there all along, right? That you've thought you've needed to look for. 
So um, with all of that education of the last two years, starting last year, the one question I was getting a lot in weed, it was, what do I buy? Mm. And in psilocybin, it's where do I get it? So it's right. where <laughs> weed was before you could go to a dispensary on every corner, right? Right. Where do yeah. I get this stuff? And so I launched a psilocybin brand called Ray Ray Underground. And I created an alias for myself called Iris and set up a Proton Mail account. And on my podcast on three episodes, say, hey, if you're curious about where to where to get my trusted plant medicine, you should email Iris. And people did. <laughs> so smart. Yeah. And I learned so much. And mm-hmm. I started this brand called Ray Ray. And now we're bringing it into market in Seattle to start as mm-hmm. a decrim- we live in a decriminalized market. So I can gift this product. So I'm just going to give it away, mm-hmm. give away psilocybin mushrooms, different value add products. I've uh, microdose capsules are part of the menu that I have current that I've had at the end of the year. I've stopped selling, and then um, caramels, chocolate caramels, and then whole fruit bodies, which are the dried mushrooms themselves. Um, and really, people like tea. They really like to consume mushrooms as a tea. So we're going to start hosting teas, ticketed events here in Seattle that are small, between eight to ten women. And I will always have a co, a co-host with the idea yeah. being that there will probably be somebody other than me that will lead these teas mm-hmm. as we continue to move forward. But we will host them in decriminalized markets throughout North America and we'll serve Ray Ray. And in your gift bag upon leaving, you will also have Ray Ray and we'll just gift it to you. And that's how we're going to build these brands. Yeah. I mean, that is so brilliant to love how, you know, you kind of got really creative about working in a, in a, you know, emerging market, emerging industry where rules are not uh, completely clear yet. And they vary so much from location to location. Um, And I assume the plan eventually as uh, decriminalization really widens is to have a a selling platform or, or evolve into a brand that can be sold. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I think what something you're doing also, which I heard you say was a, a big part of, uh, you know, what you did in the cannabis space is really be, uh, you're listening to your clients, right? You're listening to what the end user, the consumer is looking for. Um, and I think, you know, a, a kind of a common fact I see between, between the two is you have a focus on helping women get educated about their health and, uh, you know, find solutions that are not already available in the market, new solutions that uh, they can be exploring. And I think post-COVID, we have even more of an interest in, you know, understanding how our, our health is connected to our mental health and our energy, right? And that, I think there's just more openness to that in general. You're probably noticing that uh, in the market as well. And that's been the biggest surprise is that actually women are more open to psilocybin than they are to cannabis. Oh, wow. Like, mm. yes, that has been shocking. I don't know if it's because the conversation around cannabis has just opened us all up to talking about these things more, mm-hmm. but it seems as though women, and, and the way that I like to to differentiate between cannabis and any psychedelic really is that cannabis is is brilliant at treating symptoms. But when, for instance, the fourth season about ketamine was inspired after my divorce, which um, 
Uh, I moved out in September 2021. And it, it was a, it's been a really, it was a tough year, 18 months in, a lot better. And I'm very grateful that I knew about these different substances to help in a variety of ways. But I was definitely consuming too much cannabis because it was allowing me to not feel the pain. <laughs> the emotional pain of everything that had just happened. And that actually was not my goal. My goal was to, I didn't date. I was doing mushrooms once every three months on my own to really like feel how I was feeling. But in between, I was just consuming too much weed. Mm. So ketamine and microdosing psilocybin helped to curb that, which I'm grateful for because I don't want to have a relationship with anything that is that I'm in conflict with, I want to be able to say yes, you know, right. and just not say yes all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's the root cause that psychedelics really help us to get mm -hmm. to the bottom of, not just dealing with the symptoms. And so cannabis was, was masking for me an underlying depression that was clearly related to my divorce. Right. And psilocybin and ketamine have helped me snap out of that. It, you know, it, it was a process, but also shockingly really fast that I was able to say, you're depressed because I had never had a diagnosis. I didn't, mm -hmm. I, I come kind of an Eeyore. I'm an emo person. So it's not totally out of the realm of possibility, but this was different. Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, in closing, I want your, you know, advice for entrepreneurs in general. Um, so maybe it's not directly tied to the industry you're in today because, you know, it's still, uh, it's a kind of evolving, but um, what's the number one thing you would say to a woman entrepreneur who is thinking of starting any type of business? Really look and see where you can collaborate. So of like minds is my, is the current parent company for all of these creative projects that I'm working on. And it's called of like minds because what I learned Whether, what I learned with the dress, what I learned with Vanderpop is because we don't raise as much money in lieu of that cash, you have collaboration. And women are, we're good at communicating and we're also really good at working together, you know, in the right environment. True. So who is doing something that's complementary, right? That you can, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. And in cannabis, it was interesting because we didn't really see each other as competitors. Mm -hmm. We were just like, okay, well, I'll write about you on this and we'll do a contest over here. And, you know, it was, yeah. it was super collaborative. So that's where Of Like Minds comes from because I want to keep working with people who are willing to collaborate. Mm -hmm. And all of these projects have been, they've gotten to where they are with I mean, some of my cash because I have a podcast and all the rest of it, but really it's just people coming together with a shared vision and now we're going to go raise money, but it's a fully formed, pro they're fully formed products and ideas. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I love, I love your approach and thank you for, you know, creating and, and kind of continuing to grow that, that community for women first and foremost, but I think everyone benefits in the end. Um, and thank you for, you know, what you're doing to, to raise awareness for, uh, amazing, you know, products and kind of new ways of, uh, addressing our health or mental health. So I look forward to seeing where Ray Ray takes you and, uh, all of the uh, connected projects. And thank you so much for sharing your journey today. Thank you for your time, Eva. Really. I look forward to, to listening to more women on the show. Absolutely. 
Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Yeah.